Welcome everyone. The Arab Cup group stages, they're in the books. We've packed in a lot of football in the week. And here to review all that action, I've got an esteemed panel of Arab football experts. I've got our man in Mesopotamia back from a temporary hiatus. Hassan. Hi guys, good to be back. Good to be back, at least for the time being. <laughs> Until next time. Hassan from the Iraq Football Podcast from FA Lebanon. I have Varun Mahfoud. Varun, how's it going? Hi guys, how are you? And last but definitely not least, uh, the one who's probably taken most seriously amongst the four of us because he's got that blue check on his Twitter account. Madam Zahi, how is it going? It's going well. You, you give too much importance to that blue check, though. It's just something you apply for and then they give it to you. Yeah, well, you know, I've had no such luck. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you, that's not the only thing that makes you special. You are. Um, uh, as of recording, the only man here with a national team still yes. alive in the Arab Cup competition. So there's going to be a lot of... I take much more pride in that. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of commiserating. Um, and to get us started, we will talk uh, in sequential order. So from Group A to Group D, uh, when we talk about Group A, that means we're going to go to Hassanin. Hassanin, I think you are the owner of one of the tweets that aged the worst in the history of Twitter. Um, for those who didn't watch the match, what possessed you to say that Iraq was dominating Qatar uh, in the first half? First half, we definitely did. It's undeniable. I stand by this completely. But the, I also knew that we're not going to win the game. The first half, I don't know if you guys watched it, we dominated entirely. But two factors to take into account. Number one, it wasn't a full, um, full strength Qatari team. Their, their best players were on the bench. Number two... They'd already gone through, so they weren't playing for a result. They were playing way more relaxed than any, um, any previous performance. Arab kicked off the game in very, very good manner. We dominated possession. We had overwhelming uh, number of good chances compared to Qatar, who didn't really do anything in the first half. But I still knew we were going to lose because when you play a game like that and you dominate to that extent and you don't take advantage of it, it always comes back to bite you on the arse. And the other factor that I also knew was going to come back and bite us on the arse was the lack of fitness in the Arab national team. I was discussing this yesterday with uh, Gonzalo Rodriguez, who's Arab's previous um, fitness coach. He's a Spanish chap. And he worked with the Araki team in 2015, up until I think 2018, where they brought him back for a little spell. And he also worked in Al-Shulta. So he's very respected in the Arab uh, football world. He's very liked and very, uh, very loved as well by Arabic fans who still till today ask for him to come back to their national team. And we're talking about what the problems are. And he goes, look, with Arabi football, the Arabi league being as weak as it is, um, you have good quality players, some very good quality players, but that's enough to win you the league. There's no actual emphasis on producing players that are fit. There's no mentality or mindset that requires the players to push themselves further in training. Or you have the opposite. You have players that kill themselves in training, but don't apply the same commitment to football outside of the, the two hours in which they're training. So when it comes to their diet, non-existent. When it comes to their sleeping pattern, completely messed up, no discipline, no actual um, desire to spend a long time um, during the day preparing for their games, having the correct mindset, the mentality, Hopefully, Mahar can shed some light about how this is different in North Africa. 
um, later on. But I know for a fact in Iraq and the majority of the Gulf teams, these issues are very, very, uh, very, very big. So Qatar, Qatar don't have these same issues. You know, they've been planning for 10 years how to build players with the correct mindset, with the correct attitude in order to, to train properly and to, to actually prepare for games properly. So well, let me ask you this. Uh, sorry to get you off, but let me ask you this. Uh, we'll delve into this game a little bit more. I see Moronos wants to get uh, in on the action here. My takeaway uh, from this group was that you've got four, I think, teams that on the face of it, there's not a lot separating them, right? Like Qatar is obviously Asian champions. And I, I think we spoke about their core group of players being very good, but then not having a lot of depth. And the way I see this, this group and how it unfolded was basically the two best FAs succeeded in getting their teams in good positions to do something at this tournament. And at the end of the day, of course, there was some drama. It all came down to the last day for three out of the four teams here. But the two best FAs succeeded, and that is kind of um, down to their planning and their vision of the long term. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, yes and no. Of course, you know, the FA, they have a massive role and the team is always a reflection of the FA and the FA is a reflection of society in those particular countries. But I will say this, for, the, for those three games, they could have been very, very different. Very, very different. And it's always a, international football generally at, at that level. It's always a matter of fine lines. These little things that happen, snap, uh, milliseconds, they determine everything. Um, first half against Qatar, we hit the post with Yasser Qasim um, having a great shot. You had, um, we had another chance as well, um, Muhammad Qasim testing the keeper from distance. Um, there was another chance as well, I can't remember, it was a couple of days ago. But we were testing the goalkeepers. On another day, those go in. You know, that, that Yasser Qasim shot, that doesn't hit the, the post and that kind of nestles, nestles in, uh, nest it goes into the goal and it nestles in the, the, the top corner. So, um, in, against uh, Oman um, the, uh, in the first game where we dominated and we hit the crossbar, I think it was like three times in one game. Those go in and um, it sounds like I'm being very... What's the word I'm looking for? Like It sounds like I'm up, uh, playing up Arak's chances. No, look, at the end of the day, I don't believe in luck in football. I, I believe you make your own luck. I believe um, if it's not going in, that's your responsibility and luck has nothing to do with it. But all I'm saying is on another day, those games could have looked different. But for me, it, it indicates a much wider problem in that going back to what you said about the FAs, that the leagues, uh, the, the quality or the lack of quality was very evident in this Arab Cup. Yeah. If you compare, for example, the Omani League to the Iraqi League, I have no doubt whatsoever the Omani League is significantly better. Maybe not in terms of quality, but in terms of actual professionalism. And you see that within, for example, the tactical discipline in the team. You see that within the fitness of the team. So going back to the Qatar game, bro, we dominated for 60 minutes. <laughs> and then you use the, the knockoff that happened after those minutes was unbelievable. Players um, suddenly no longer able to sprint, breathing out of their ass for lack of a better term. Yeah. And it happened against Bahrain as well. You know, we had a very good, uh, well, not very, sorry, not Bahrain, against Oman. After 60 minutes, players getting cramped. 
This is unfathomable. And it goes back to my interview yesterday with Gonzalo. He goes, at the end of the day, these players, if you can win the Araqi League with a lack of fitness, then you're not going to be able to have that same impact on an international stage because you're not playing small teams like the likes of Kerch and Zawra or Erbil. You're playing the best of the best in terms of this region. Yeah. So if you can't... I wanna... Yeah, just finish up that thought and then I want to get Maroon's thoughts on. Yeah, yeah, so just uh, if, you're, if you're going to try to compete on international stage, you need to respect the other teams much more and turn up and be fit. And Iraq didn't do that this tournament and they came out to buy us. Uh, Maroon, you have your hand raised. Uh, let's get your thoughts and then we'll uh, give to Matt, who also has some thoughts on what went down in Group A. Uh, I completely agree with Hassanin and because... I wasn't really watching the game. I put it in the background while I was working or something. And uh, it got my eye when the result was around 2-0. There was a defender who got a long ball or a lob from a goalkeeper. And he like he wanted to uh, control it, but he made the control for the uh, for the uh, adversary. And and I think uh, it was Al-Muaz, not sure. I don't remember quite who was it got the ball and went 1-1 versus the goalkeeper. It was 2-0 at minute 86 or 87. Uh, these, you can't pass like that. You can't make a pass that goes only two or three meters into the uh, into the direction you want to send it. That's, you're an international player. You're playing for your country. You're playing at the Arab Cup. You're playing at the World Cup uh, uh, stadiums. You can't be like that. And it's not just in Iraq. It's in Syria, it's in Lebanon, it's in Palestine, it's in the whole country. You can't, you, when Janini came in 2015 to coach Lebanon, the first training session he made, it was public. He, According to journalists who watched that uh, training uh, session, he was teaching international players how to make a pass. It's not acceptable to, to be taught how to make a pass when you're 26, 27, 29, 30 years old, playing for your country, and you cannot make a pass. How the fuck are you going to play? How the fuck are you going to evolve, uh, play football? What I watched yesterday in Lebanon versus Sudan, it wasn't football. What I watched when I watched Iraq, okay, they were good. Qatar did not make uh, uh, very very much a lot of attacks. They, they didn't attack Iraq very well. But it wasn't football. We, we can't watch football. Now we're going to start to watch a little bit of football. When we, when we watch Morocco, when we watch Algeria, when we watch Tunis, when we watch Egypt. But the, you, you, you see there's a big difference. And even there's a big difference between Algeria and those, uh, those countries with Europe. And I'm not talking Spain, Italy. I'm talking Romania. I'm talking uh, Czechia. I'm talking uh, Croatia. Uh, even even uh, Serbia, uh, Ireland. Ireland who haven't made the World Cup since forever. Oh, 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 oh. that's not the- <laughs> That's an entirely different discussion there. Let's not exaggerate. I see what you're saying. There's obviously a gulf between, I think, uh, yeah. Asian sides that competed here and the African sides. And with that, uh, Mahara is kind of like the outsider, the African football expert. Uh, what were your thoughts on what went down in, in Group A? No, I just, just to Hasnain's point, uh, he mentioned a few things that I thought were interesting. I think all three of Qatar's goal scorers came off the bench, right? 
So uh, it was two goal scorers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Hafif and Maaz Ali. And Al Haydus didn't score. I think he scored the third goal. No? Okay, my bad then. Um, so yeah, the, they obviously were. They, they tried to rest some, their best players probably and brought them on in the second half and, and they made the difference. Um, and we talked we talked about this Qatar have you know backup players that can sort of push those starters and they obviously had to go back to rely to those senior players to get the goals uh, when it mattered. But did it, if it really mattered for them, like Hasnain said, I don't think they were taking this match too 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 seriously. Um, I think for for what he was talking about with um, Iraqi players sometimes almost being content enough just to win the league. I think you need examples. So when you have, in Algeria, we noticed this too, like um, in the mid 2000s, there weren't a lot of players like leaving the Algerian league and going to play in Europe. But um, towards like 2010, 2011, 2012, when you had examples of a few players making it out um, and signing to, you know, smaller French clubs or Belgian clubs or even uh, Khaliji clubs, it really like sparked like um, an awareness throughout the league where all of a sudden uh, players were, uh, they realized that it was a possibility and they weren't just content with just trying to win the league anymore, trying to be the best player in Algeria anymore. They were trying to uh, make it at a European club. And they realized, for example, that even fitness levels just to win the Algerian league, it didn't suffice. They had to actually personally push themselves. So if uh, the 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 means were not being given by a club to you know have elevated fitness levels. A lot of players were personally motivated to actually push themselves because they knew okay there's a pathway for me to get to Belgium or for me to get to a, a, a second division side in France and from there I can work my way up. So the really motivated players they could see it you know and I think as long as you know somebody doesn't kick down that door and provide a a, a path, I think that can be a lot of, very difficult for domestic players to envision sometimes. Hassanan, I want to come over to you. Let's um, focus a little bit on what happened exactly in these games. We, we spoke about the 3-0 um, that uh, Iraq suffered at the hands of Qatar. In the other game, Oman uh, also pulling away late with a 3-0 scoreline against uh, Bahrain. I think Bahrain is probably a side that really wished COVID didn't happen because their 2019 was, was fantastic. Uh, they won the West, uh, West Asian Football Federation Championship. They won the Gulf Cup. They were flying uh, in World Cup qualifying in a group that included Iran and Iraq. And now that dream seems like a bygone dream. doesn't seem like it, it, it happened at all. Um, where does, I'd say, Bahrain go from here? Where do we rock go from here? I want to ask Hassan in this question because uh, we've enjoyed, I think, a couple of the episodes of the Petro Show. Uh, <laughs> at this Arab Cup. Uh, but I'm, from what I've read, he's given an ultimatum to the Iraqi FA. Can you fill us in on that? So um, we're, we're, there's so many different sources. But today, from a very reliable source, it looks like Rahim Hamid Petrovic's right-hand man, former advocate, man, uh, the manager, his right-hand man, he's been, uh, I think, for like 15 years now in his position as assistant manager. He's now gone. He's axed first person out of the, out the door. Um, Petrovic is going to be the next person. There's rumors that the next manager is going to be the current um, current Olympic team manager, the under-23s. His name is uh, Sukop, Miroslav Sukop. I'm, I'm not mistaken, he's from Czech Republic. He's a good manager. Nothing amazing, not an amazing tactician, but I think he's a, as, a, as a man manager, he's quite good. Um, and I think that might be effective with the, um, the Arafi team because... <laughs> 
without giving away too much, I don't think many of them like Petrovic or none of them really like advocate either. So um, I think we need a manager that can come in and kind of win the players back on side and kind of really get them to buy into the, the philosophy that the manager wants to bring in. Um, also today, rumours circulating, and I firmly believe them that this was the final straw. The next round of games is going to see a massive influx of, uh, of expat players we're going to be following the Moroccan, Algerian, uh, Tunisian method of, of bringing expats and having the local players fill in the gaps that are left by the expat players. Uh, and a lot of those gaps will not just be filled in by local players, but specifically Olympic team players. So hopefully what we're doing is building for the future. Whether or not this, this will happen remains to be seen, but that's, that's the hope. Uh, whereas Bahrain, I think... Again, Bahrain and Iraq, both teams had very, very good 2019 uh, like international seasons. The lesson that Bahrain and Iraq need to learn is that football doesn't wait for you. Football doesn't wait. If you don't continuously progress, you will be left behind. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter about COVID. It doesn't matter how bad your affair is or not. Okay, football will always progress. And either you're on that bandwagon or you're going to get left behind. No better example of this than Iraq. Iraq right now, our league is 30 years behind the rest of the world in terms of how we play, in terms of the mentality and mindset. Maron earlier talked about like um, players needing to improve and players at the international stage uh, having, been, having to be taught the basics. This is not just quality, bro. This is thaqafa, this is a mentality issue. That, uh, a lot of us Arabs, unfortunately, are on international teams lack. And if you want to progress as Bahrain would like to, as Iraq would like to, you've got to get moving. You've got to invest in your national team. You've got to invest in your league. You've got to bring in foreign coaches. And if you don't, man, sooner or later, the likes of Thailand, the likes of Vietnam, they're going to take us over. And you're seeing it gradually every single World Cup qualifiers in the Asian Cup. Before, when Bahrain or Iraq would play Vietnam or Thailand, bro, it was a joke game. Like, we would score them in football. Now it's getting harder and harder because they're improving, whereas we're either, like, at the same level or, like, actually declining. So, for me, I hope that Iraq, Bahrain, Palestine, all these countries, they use us as a reality check. This is where we are in the grand scheme of things. It's harsh... To say it's difficult to admit but if you don't admit this you can't solve the problem we're serious we need to actually address the issues and that's that's really all i can say about this yeah most definitely i also have to say that a lot changes in the space of 10 days i remember recording our first episode previewing everything uh, dick advocate was the manager of iraq um you know the squad we were expecting was not the squad that was revealed uh, petrovic took over as coach. Now he's most likely out. So uh, 10 days is a very, very, very long time in the world of Arab football. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, I think we sort of um, wrapped up all of Group B. Do we fancy uh, Qatar or Oman to do something in this tournament uh, going forward? Oman is playing against uh, Tunisia, if I'm not mistaken, and it would be Qatar against UAE in the next round. Do we like either of those uh, teams to progress to the semifinals? I, I would fully expect Qatar to go through. Um, 
I think now they're going to be putting up the, the big guns. They're going to want to make a statement here. Um, it's on their home soil. Emirat, I don't really rate them. With all due respect to their team and their fans, I, I don't think they're, they're anywhere near as good as they like to believe they are. Um, whereas Oman, uh, I mean, I said Tunis are, are favourites for me, and I'm not going to backtrack now, but it's football, you never know. And Oman are, um, I want to say, a good side, but an organised side. So there's always that little bit of hope that their fans will have. Maher, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I think we all kind of expected Qatar to maybe perhaps to be the best West Asian side to in this tournament, or at least to go the furthest. We kind of expected them and the North Africans to make it. You got the home field advantage. You got the fact that, you know, uh, it's it's the same group that's been preparing this World Cup for the last five, six years. They've looked okay. I thought they lacked a little bit of sharpness earlier on, but I think it was good to see Maez Ali score a nice goal as well. Um, Akram Afif, I love, I love that player. I think his, his pace always surprises me a little bit. So uh, they have the, the technical leaders, I think, to, to make it the furthest of all the Asian sides. And now they even have, I think, an easier pathway than, than the others as well. So I think, I think Qatar is going to make it to the semifinals with three other North African nations. Uh, Maron, any thoughts on whether or not we could see a surprise in the quarterfinals, or are we just expecting Qatar and Tunisia to um, uh, advance on the, at the expense of UAE and Oman? Yeah, I don't think there will be any surprise. Qatar and Tunis will walk through to the next round, I think. It's going to be one Asian country and the three African countries, in my opinion. Okay, well, that wraps up our uh, analysis of Group A. Uh, now we get to the more cosmopolitan groups. The best balanced group, I think, was Group B. Uh, everybody put, collected at least one win here, and we also had the nice geographic variety of having two African sides, two Asian sides. Uh, final day, it was big, big, big drama because well, Tunisia had stumbled. Uh, we learned from Maher last time that Kveyer was really coaching for his job. He needed a result. Tunisia got that result. They beat UAE 1-0. Took an early lead. I was surprised to see them not add to that lead, given the fact they really needed an insurance call just in case Syria managed to win their game. Uh, Syria, game full of drama. Mahmoud Mawas in tears at the end of it. Uh, had an opportunity to um, to give his side the lead. It didn't happen. Late on, Mauritania uh, grabbed the winner really against the run of play. I was impressed by how Mauritania improved over the course of the week. I mean, they looked completely clueless in the first game. They looked a little bit better in the second game and only gave up a late goal to uh, the United Arab Emirates in that game. And in this game, um, they made things very, very difficult uh, against Syria and they took the lead twice. Once early on in the second half, and then right at the death. Um, Man, what do you think about about Mauritania's chances in the African Cup of Nations? Are you seeing that they've actually used this tournament in a really good way to prepare for the the big dance? And can we see them? You know, it's a forgiving format in the Afcon now. Twenty four teams. Can they maybe get the three points that they probably need to get to the round of sixteen of that tournament? Yeah, that's possible because, like you said, you know, we have 24 teams in the AFCON and I think, uh, what is it, six, 16 teams go through to the next round. So you have like a lot of third place teams that actually end up progressing. 
And when that's the case, you can get through with some draws. You know, you don't have necessarily have to get um, a win to go through. Uh, so I could see them uh, perhaps going through. I forget who's in their group. But um, funnily enough, this wasn't really Mauritania's best side, like attacking-wise, uh, in terms of on paper. They played a few, a few what we'd call, what we'd consider bench players. Um, they didn't start the likes of Adama Ba or uh, Ahmed Moulay, Bessem, uh, some of their players that have been considered best players and have the most experience for them. Adama Ba came on and I think provided the assist for the second goal. But I think this was more the Mauritania I expected to see um, at the beginning of the tournament, who were a little tougher to break down. Scored on a set piece, the first goal, which, yeah. uh, which I kind of expected a little bit more of for them to be a threat of. And the second goal, I think Syria was just pushing. I think they were more desperate and they weren't really defending the counterattack that well. And it's just one of those goals where you almost feel like, I mean, it was scored, I think, in the last minute or the last maybe 30 seconds, maybe the last two minutes. So it's one of those where didn't really, they weren't going to go through anyways. They needed that goal. So um, I think it would probably, a, a more fair result probably would have been a draw. Um, but this is the Mauritania I expected to see. And I think with a little more sharpness with this coach, Diego Gomez given a little more time with this team, with a preparation camp before the AFCON, they could, they could progress to the next round in that third place, but they're still, I think, um, a little bit limited for my, for my, for my liking. Before we discuss Tunisia and UAE, the one thing I really want to touch upon is uh, some of the reaction from Syrian fans. So I saw a couple of things on social media that were calling. Um, so for those who don't know the nickname of the Syrian national team, they are the Eagles of Qasim. And they were referring to Omar Khribin and Omar Suma, who have been some of the best players in all of Asia over the last decade or so, so as peacocks. Uh, and that, you know, when the peacocks aren't around, look at how this team can play and fight and get a result uh, against Tunisia and beat Tunisia 2-0 despite them not being around. And then against Mauritania, it really seemed they could have used two strikers who know their way around uh, a goal. Um, Hassanin, I see your hands up. Anything you have to say about this? Not entirely about this, but speaking of funny things we've seen on social media, mate, today I saw something on Instagram that killed me. Picture of the Qatari players. I don't know if you saw the celebration after the goal. The player just lied down on the pitch and just pretended to sleep like that. So I had a picture of that scene and it said Aspire, which is the main footballing academy in Qatar that produced all of these players. And then the next image was a picture of the Arabi players and it just said Expire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that one was a little bit more poignant than this criticism of Omar Khribi and Omar Soma. I, for one, think this can be used as a positive for Syria. I'm not sure if Valerio Tsitsa is, um, is the answer. Uh, I have been watching a little bit of Ed Katz's program in Mejlis where they bring a lot of footballers from around the region and, you know, they sort of give the Syrian a chance to, to, uh, to give his opinion or whomever might be playing on that particular day. On this particular program, uh, Firas Al-Khatib, who is, a, I think, a legend for anyone who follows Arab football, was giving his opinion on, on Syrian football. And he says he likes Tizza, but he cannot say that he should be given a chance past the qualifiers. I'm wondering if do we think they can use some of the positives they got out of here, learning how to defend again, um, the grit that they showed, the couple of young players who came through, in addition to Akhribin and Soma to maybe make a surprise in Group A of World Cup qualifying? Uh, Maron, why don't you uh, take this one? 
Uh, yeah, I think Valerio did a decent job with this Syrian national team. I'm pretty much looking forward for them in the World Cup qualifiers, but I really hope that they don't do well for our sake. But uh, yeah, I, I, if if the Syrian uh, FA thought about Valerio as just an interim manager from now until June, they've made a big mistake. I think they can they can keep him, try to build on what he can do. Uh, he can build a decent national team, uh, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, uh, why not to try to build with him? They're not going to get any better uh, coach with the salary that they're expecting to pay for a coach or uh, if they get a local coach, he won't be as good as Valerio. So why not stick with him? Yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement there. Any final thoughts on uh, Syria before we get on to uh, Tunisia UAE? Yeah, I think Syria, the, the game against Mauritania, yet another example of the, the, the fine lines between success and failure in, in football at an international stage. And again, it's these little things in terms of like quality, composure, um, fitness, these all add up, and I think the Arab Cup, if anything, really exposed all these flaws in the the Asian or the specifically the Gulf of the West Asian teams, and um, that that last goal embodied everything that I've, I've been discussing in terms of the problem, the kind of the lack of positioning, the the lack of fitness to get back and track back properly, the the lack of desire to win the ball. It's just. It really, I think it really captured a lot of problems that Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Palestine, these, these, the, the problems that we face. And yeah, that's this. It was quite disappointing. And now let's get into the big drama of this group. Uh, Mahri dropped a, a knowledge bomb on us the last episode. Kabeya apparently uh, fighting for his job. He got out of the group. I'm not, I don't really understand how this team didn't really push. Well, I mean, I guess they were kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of scenario, but I really thought they would try and get an insurance goal because for the longest time, it seemed that, yes, they would win the game, but that Syria would also win. And, you know, if I've done my maths correctly, they would have been um, the odd team out out of three teams sitting on six points. That scenario did not happen. Uh, Kabir ended up winning the group. Obviously, there is that loss against Syria that was a huge surprise to everyone. They did just enough to get past UAE. Can they be the type of side that gets stronger as the tournament goes goes on? They are on the easier side, quote unquote, of the bracket. Yeah, um, they could technically, but that's not really how things have played out in the last few major tournaments they played in. Um, usually, they just <laughs> make they somehow they keep like stuttering and limping and like barely making it over to like the quarterfinal or a semifinal. And then they get eliminated. That's how it's been over for the last few African Cup of Nations. Um, and really, the sentiment that you expressed right now, that's how most Tunisians feel. It's like, yeah, okay, we did enough. We're good. Uh, but, like, there's so much more to be had here. We could have done so much better. Um, and that's really the main criticism of Kaber at the moment. Uh, credit to him for this match. He made a few changes. Um, he started Yusuf Msekni. Um, and... Uh, took off Firas in Arabi, which I think I think Tunisia have been sort of looking for who, 
Msekni's Khalifa, Msekni's successor for a very long time now. Um, Yusuf Msekni, for those who don't know, is probably the best player to come out of Tunisian football for the last, for over the past decade, let's say. Um, very, very technical attacking midfielder who's been playing in Qatar now, I think, for 10 years. Um, he was supposed to be, you know, the first big Arab superstar that PSG signed uh, after the Qatari takeover, but he ended up going to play in the QSL instead. But he's still very capable of magic moments. And in big moments, in terms of like qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, I can remember a very nice goal that he scored in 2013 Africa Cup of Nations. He's always stepped up on a big occasion. And even though he suffered successive knee injuries, they've had to look to him again. And even though maybe it wasn't his most complete game, that goal was, was a thing of beauty. He dribbles through uh, four or five uh, Emirati players and Saifuddin Jazeera finds the ball at his feet and he, and he knocks it in. So I thought that was something that was interesting is that they still haven't managed to find that person that they can rely on in the big moments. It's still Yusuf Msakni. Maybe Hannibal Majri is going to be the solution. Uh, the Manchester United youngster who uh, has started now for three matches in the group stages, which is very valuable experience for him. But at the moment, they still have to rely on Yusuf Msakni. Um, I thought it was good that Kabeir also didn't go back to that weird 3-4-3 that he was trying to force. Um, what was good for Tunisia was that they got it right back in because we spoke about Hamza Matute being out with COVID. So they got Mohamed Dragger, he came back in so they could actually use it right back and they played a normal 4-2-3-1, um, which is much more, uh, the team is much more used to that system. Um, in that sense, I think they had a little more stability. Um, and he made the goalkeeping change that we spoke about last time. So Farouk bin Mustafa, who uh, wasn't the most reliable in the last game, to use a euphemism, um, was replaced by Maaz Hassan, who we also talked about last time. And I thought Maaz Hassan was pretty good. I thought he had a, a nice reaction save. Uh, Emirates could have scored a goal, but he had a nice little reaction save where he stuck out his hand. Um, but like I said last time, they switched the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper has one or two or three decent matches. Then usually they give up a howler late in the tournament. So I don't. I really don't hope that's the case for Maaz Hassan. But that's something to get, that we're going to have to keep an eye on. Is he going to be consistent uh, in the latter stages of this tournament or no? So Tunisia go through, like I said, it's a little bit mitigated. They feel, I think they feel, they're happy that they're gone, they've gone through. They felt like they could have done better. Uh, they've fallen into old habits. Um, and now it's wait and see. Are they going to be able to push on or are they going to fail like they failed over the last few tournaments? Definitely. Uh, How is my boy doing? Has he played well? Yeah, you weren't here last time, but he actually was the definitely the, he was probably the only Tunisian that played well in the second match, uh, in the second match of the of qualifying or sorry of the group stages. The first match he chipped in with an assist. Yesterday, I thought was probably his weakest game of the three, but he was still he was still okay. Um, and the most important thing for Hanbal, of course, is that he's getting experience. This is a player that didn't have a cap. Uh, I mean. I believe he had three coming into the tournament. Actually, I think Did he? Had, yeah, uh, according to Wikipedia, at least he had three coming into the tournament. Okay, I remember him just being oh, like presented. Yeah, I think they were friendly Sorry? games. I saw that as well. They apparently played three games prior to this. But, um, okay, I had, I had, yeah, I know it was still a very new move for him, and I hadn't seen him play. So, uh, culpa on that, but he's still somebody that. Um, how many senior appearances with Manchester United? I think maybe just one in the cup. No, I'm not mistaken. 
it might be zero, maybe one little like cameo from mm. the bench. Yeah, mo we've mostly heard about him at the academy level, that he's like one of the be United's best players at the academy level. So I think him getting this run of senior football is very, very important, especially if Tunisia, they think he can develop quickly and they think he can be a player that can contribute uh, at the World Cup next year if they make it. So uh, it's good for him to get this run of games in, but he's still not, he, he's seen as like somebody that can like, that's playing well, that can chip in maybe a little bit. But he's still not being relied on, obviously. The kid is 18 years old and he's in his first five caps. So uh, I still think it's been a positive experience for him. Okay, I think that wraps up Group B, unless anybody else has anything uh, to chime in on uh, as far as the teams in Group B are concerned. Okay, I don't think so. That was my attempt on delaying uh, us talking about what happened in Group C. Obviously, the game we all want to talk about is the one that was between the two big sides in the group, uh, Morocco against Saudi Arabia. Um, what happened in that game? Because uh, I was otherwise occupied. Maher, did you happen to catch that? Not really. Not really. I had, like, Marun watched, uh, what match was it? I think it was Amman Bahrain. I also had it on in the background, but just for 30 minutes. And just basically, I wrote down notes and basically were that despite the changes, Morocco pretty much used a brand new lineup. Morocco were still dominating. Um, and I think they look like the best side in Qatar. I think, I don't think there's going to be a lot of disagreement there from anybody. Um, I, again, just from the 34 minutes, when I would look, peek over, when I hear the commentator scream, I saw Sofiane Rahimi at left wing. Uh, being a menace and I think that's a player that Morocco should try to start I think I'm a big big fan of his a little bit maybe biased because I did, we shot a documentary about him in October but man the guy is he has a knack for a goal on the big on the big occasion and I think he 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 was unlucky not to score here um, so I think that's it's, it was good for Hussein Amuta to basically switch up his squad see that they could still put in a very solid performance and that he still had players that he could rely on. So I think not only have they been the best team, I think they're probably also the deepest team, which is a problem uh, for Algeria, which we're going to talk about later. But uh, overall, I think I was surprised to see Saudi not push them a little bit more because Morocco were all over them with a with reserve team. So I know that the Saudis are using their under-23 side, but I was surprised the Saudis weren't a little bit more of a threat. But maybe you guys... Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, Sa the Saudi team obviously had a little bit of experience in there. You have Gerasim uh, Brokan and uh, Abdullah Hamdan. These are two guys. Just because Saudi Arabia doesn't have a lot of forwards as a result of the Saudi League bringing in all these foreigners to play in those positions, those are kind of the two guys they depend on. So uh, besides them and, you know, the, the goalkeeper that started the first game and one or two other guys, nobody else has a cap, uh, that showed in this tournament, but it also showed that they had the quality to stick with uh, Jordan's A-team. And there's no way you can say that wasn't Jordan's A-team in the first game. That was before they had their spate of injuries. It was Jordan's A-team minus Musa Tamir. Um, and they hung, in the, they hung in there with them. And I think uh, they showed a lot of maturity as well in their match against Palestine to, to get a point out of that when things were going all wrong for them. You know, a, a, team, a young team that concedes right before halftime, you sort of worry about what their mental state's going to be. But... They stuck in there. They found a way to get a point. And I think even in a losing effort, um, the fact that they didn't completely collapse, yes, it was Morocco's reserve team. Yes, Morocco didn't have anything to play for. 
Um, I think that's that's good from a Saudi perspective because what they wanted to do in this tournament was discover the one or two or three guys that didn't get a lot of time with the first team that could possibly um, take up the last two squad positions in your 23 or 25 man squad. So I think mission accomplished for, for Saudi Arabia. Um, Maron or Hassanen, any thoughts on, on Saudi Arabia? I don't think there's much else to, to say about them here. No, I don't think so. Um, we all expected them to go through, to be fair, but... I didn't. <laughs> obviously, uh, the, the oracle over here, I didn't. <laughs> I think generally, I thought the, the quality of players they would have had, that they, they, uh youth team would have been a bit better. We um, recently, I say we as an Iraq, we played them at, I think, the under-23 team in the, um, uh, I think it was the Arab Cup, recently we lost to them in the semi-finals of um the tournament but they looked good but i guess um the players just didn't feel that they were ready to play against a strong moroccan side and uh, i keep saying this during this podcast but at this stage if you're not at 100 you're not gonna get a result so uh it should be an important lesson for these young players to, to take away from from this experience and that that's really the main thing yeah, I believe that was the, the WAF championship that they played in uh, October of this year. Um, Maron, any thoughts on this game before you guys can ask me what happened in the in the other game, which we are um, uh, keeping uh, secret, so not to um, spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched the game yet? Uh, no, just a quick fun fact. Morocco is the only team to yet concede the goal in this tournament. So it speaks volume about them and it speaks volume about all the three teams that they were in the group. And their yeah. uh, their B team, sorry, very quickly, their B team hasn't lost a match now, I think in 35 matches or something like that, something ridiculous. So, Yeah, I think Morocco are, are definitely favorites. They're closing in on not just that, but one of the things that occurred to me is that there hasn't been any fantastic goalkeeping um, at this tournament. I mean, a little bit, most of them in the first game, but again, that was in a losing effort. But other than that, I have to really scratch my head as to like, who's to, you know, who are the three best goalkeepers at this tournament? And Zanetti, who's not done much, but he's been good when called upon the one time maybe. Uh, I think we'll probably take Golden Glove if, uh, if Morocco go uh, to the final of this tournament. Um, so lads, you know, it's up to you now. I cannot uh, afford to go on a rant because we are on a schedule. What do you want to know about Jordan against Palestine? Hassanen, I see you smiling. Uh, have at it. How did Adnan, uh, uh, Adnan Hamad do, our uh, beloved Iraqi football coach? Look, I don't understand why he doesn't get a chance with the uh, Iraqi first team. Okay, for you, for those of you who are watching this to catch up and aren't really aware of what happened, um, I have a hard time saying this, but Jordan won 5-1. The proceedings of that match were not quite a 5-1 game. Um, I'll just leave it at that. You, you have to find an extended highlights package because the two minutes that FIFA uh, put on their YouTube channel is not really going to do it justice. Um, I think Adnan Hamad, first of all, is a very, very, very clever manager. I do remember us playing him on one occasion, actually 10 years ago, Pan-Arab Games, opening game of the Pan-Arab Games. Um, and again, he just knows what your weaknesses are. And then he goes after them. And then he capitalizes on them. And then afterwards, he's like, oh, well, I just can sit back and counter. 
Um, and that's what he did. You know, I think he knew that we were going to have a problem with our fullbacks. And I've mentioned this before. There's no Abdullah Jabir. There's no Musab al-Battaq, the latter of whom got diagnosed with COVID the day, day before the tournament. Um, and that showed, you know, the first, the first goal really, uh, Sharara, who the Jordanian fans were pulling for to start, starts, dribbles into the box, past the left back. Uh, our captain goes in for the tackle, gets the ball, but also gets the man. Penalty. Boom, 1-0. Uh, Palestine get back into the match. Uh, Khalid Salem has aged me at least 10 to 20 years in this in these last 10 to 20 days. He had a booty offside. <laughs> I mean, just that's, that, that was late on. Early on, there was a ball that came in, a fantastic cross from Thanos Liam on the left wing. He's there. The ball is there. The goal is open. Whiff, miss. I think 10 minutes later, uh, Yassine Bakhit, another fast, tricky winger who hadn't been starting for Jordan, he starts on the left side. Who's starting at right back for Palestine? Mohamed Saleh, who's more of a center back and isn't very fast. Blitzes past him. The help comes. It's too late. Slots at home. And who is it? The star of the other 5-1 game that Palestine suffered against Jordan at the Asian Cup. He didn't score four this time, but he got his one goal. Hamzat Dardur, now leading scorer of the Jordanian national team. Then things got interesting because at that point, you're like, well, what are we going to do, right? Because we're down 2-0. 20 minutes have been played. We need three to go through. And credit, you know, I think a lot of people are getting on the coach, are getting on the players. Credit to everyone who was on the pitch. They tried. I mean, they just bought in wave after wave after wave after wave of attack. They were finally rewarded at the end of the first half. Um, Mahmoud Abouarda, nice chipped cross in. Tamersom heads it home, 2-1. Second half starts, and then there's another miss, another just like... Khalid Salem is played on through. He's round the keeper. The goal is all there. He misses. Um, and then it just, it stayed like that. There was the booty offside. You, you, not even a booty. It was like, eh, like the kind of, eh, like just the tail end of his shirt or something. And he's offsides. And that could have made it 2-2. Um, I don't want to go into to breaking down every, every uh, element of the match frame by frame. I see Hassan, then you have your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry I keep coming back to this, but I think it really does tell a bigger picture. So you're talking about, for example, the chances Palestine had. I talked about the chances Iraq had during our games, um, especially the first half. One thing that I really want us to focus on is the Qatar three goals. They brought on their substitutes in a, in a, like a span of 10, 15 minutes. You see the quality in those chances. Three chances, three goals. Whereas you see the number of chances our players require and the chances that they miss up. There was, a, there was one instance that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, there was a big chance we had where Bashar Rassin was one-on-one -on -one and he decides to dink the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper completely reads it and just does a little hop and just grabs the ball. Um, you see the difference in class and quality looking at the effectiveness of those Qatari players when Al Muaz Ali got to the ball, every touch he took mattered. Yeah. He got through to the goalkeeper, slide it away, no fancy business, just pure class and quality. Same thing for uh, Akram Hafif. Compare that to Palestine, compare that to Iraq, Emirat, other teams, and you, it really builds a picture of the, the gulf and the divide between how good those players are 
and where we are as a football nation. And I want your thoughts on this, Bursa. Like, what do you think about the quality of our finishing? And I mean, I agree. I, I agree and I disagree at the same time. Like, I, I also know this was a... I can't speak too much about Iraq. I know you guys have uh, a lot of players missing. I think we are really brothers in this and the fact that we have so many expatriate players and we need to make more of an effort to bring them in uh, and, and play them. Um, this was going to be trouble for Palestine when the day the squad was announced. Uh, there was no there was no number nine. The only number nine was 19-year-old Dibad Dehamsha. I thought in the games that he played, he played in all the games, but he started this one. I thought he did a fine job for, you know, maybe the fifth or sixth youngest man at the tournament. Uh, Khalid Salim wasn't part of the initial squad. He was the injury replacement for Mustafa Al-Battat, who's a right back. Um, we ended up starting him in two games. You know, he had a chance against Saudi Arabia that he, did, like, instead of just continuing his run and getting his head on it and going into the goal with the ball, uh, he tries to karate kick it. Um, he, you know, he's just missed. Like, there is an alternative, I think, uh, universe where he takes chances that any decent striker should take. Uh, and Palestine is in the knockout stages. Now, that said, this all comes down to a bigger picture thing, like you said. And that is, we are in a region where everyone's caught up. And I'm proud to be a fan of a team that has caught up. That, you know, 10 years ago, you were talking about uh, Palestine that was ranked maybe 170th, we're ranked 98th now. And nobody can take this lightly because we are capable of beating any team in West Asia on our day. Now, that said, in order for that to happen, you need a federation that supports the players. These players haven't gotten paid bonuses for qualifying for the Arab Cup. They got $750,000. They haven't paid the, the players anything. These, this is a, a federation that has a reputation of not paying coaches. Um, this is a federation, if we just compare it to the Jordanian federation, Adnan Hamad came in in September. He had two friendlies. He lost his first one against Haiti. Then he beat Bahrain, played against Malaysia. Okay, he beat Malaysia, beat Uzbekistan. Then they went to Europe. They played against Kosovo. They beat Kosovo. And then they beat Belarus. The results don't really matter. But the thing is, they gave Adnan Hamad six games to look at the players, make a decision, figure out how he wants to play before a big tournament. And at the end of the day, that's what happened. Like he figured it out. And yes, of course they have access to all of their players because only one of them plays in Europe. Almost all of them play in the Jordanian league. But it also goes to show that, you know, it's not that Jordan, like the average Jordanian player is so much better than the average Palestinian player. But to support the average Jordanian player, the average national team player that is, that gets to the national team gets from the Jordanian FA is miles away from what the average Palestinian player who plays for the national team gets. Um, you know, they when they do well, they're rewarded. For the Jordanian players, I mean, I don't get it, but, but you know, the crown prince shows up and they're like, oh my God, the crown prince is here and oh, I'm going to go and fight for the crown prince and do all these things and really show that I'm worth it. And then they're going to give me a bonus and all this stuff. You know, and credit the president, but they fought despite not getting paid their bonuses. They fought despite the fact that, you know, they didn't have... Uh, a pre-tournament camp. They fought despite the fact that, you know, all these problems happened. But at the end of the day, I also have to blame the coach because the coach did make some selection, some bad selections. And Khalid Salim starting a forward from a sporting perspective is a big reason why Palestine weren't able to at least get a, a draw from this game. And I think a draw, which is what I had predicted, would have at least been fair. 5-1 was just the, was just, what happens when you are chasing a game for 80 minutes? 
The coach sits on his hands. He makes no substitutions. And then everyone is gassed. And then Jordan gets a goal that was off a crazy deflection. And then it's a complete, like, just breakdown, which I don't really blame the players for having that type of breakdown. It, they're human. These things happen. Matt, I see your hands up right now. So go ahead. No, yeah, for me, just those that five to ten, because I, I was watching, like I told you, I had Morocco, Saudi Arabia in the background, and then I was flipping back into the house. And I, I really started around the set, beginning of the, the second half. So I caught the, the, the last minute goal. I saw the highlight and everything that I saw. Okay, Palestine have some momentum, it's 2-1. And then I, th I did think, honestly, being completely candid, I did think Jordan were playing slightly better football, but Palestine were dangerous. They were really like threatening to, to equalize. Um, and that five to 10 minute period where you think you equalize, but no, there's the booty offside. And then the way you can see the second goal where it's like, it's a deflection, you know, that's just so like, demoralizing it really takes the wind out of your sails i felt like that was like a real turning point where it's like okay after this it's like it's tough to after making so many efforts thinking you're there and then you can see the goal like that where it's like it's not really your fault it's like a brutal deflection that's like, that was really really tough i think for palestine so i think that that like 10 minute window was really really decisive and like you said the last two goals they were just like at that point like you've given all you can and you could the defenders were probably a little absent-minded and players slip behind them and it's just like yeah you can, for me that's not like it definitely doesn't reflect the the way the game went went down it wasn't a, a 5-1 it shouldn't have been a 5-1 scoreline yeah uh, you know I, I had an opportunity to speak briefly with um, some of the players last night and they told me listen Khalid Salim's chance when he was sent through a goal I think there was, was around maybe the 55th minute and he's clear through on goal and you know he has still some speed in his 32 year old legs yes he's only 32 I've confirm this. I didn't make a mistake in our last episode. <laughs> he is only 32. Um, he rounds the keeper and the goal is just there. And, you know, listen, I failed at becoming a professional footballer. I'm not saying I would score from there, but there are players that just like, you know, you can name any guy who played striker for Palestine in the last 20 years. You give him that chance that you've rounded the keeper and now you've got the entire goal. Just put it on target. They would do it. They would score. And he did it. And I think that, you know, this has to be the end, the end of the Khalid Salim experience. It has to be. Like, we cannot do this again. It is so, you know, I don't want to pick on one player for, for this failure. Obviously, they win as a team, they lose as a team. But dear God, um, just never, ever again. And obviously, I spoke about the absences Palestine have an attack, even with those absences. I still think that there are some names out there, either from the local league or from leagues abroad that you could have like, convinced them to release the player that you could have bought in that would have done uh, a better a better job. And I think one of the big, 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 big mistakes uh, of this entire experience was I don't think the coach had trust in the players on the bench. He never used five substitutes in any of the three games. He only went to his bench in the 80th minute of this game. Um, and, you know, the, the question is why, right? So I think respect to how he played, I thought, let's put the Saudi Arabia game aside. I thought against Saudi, uh, or sorry, the Morocco game aside, the Saudi Arabia game, the Jordan game, I thought Palestine played very well. They were proactive, they played on the front foot. Um, so I can't really knock his tactics, but his in-game decisions and his squad selection leave a lot to be desired. The only thing, and this will be my final point on Palestine, is what comes next. Um, you know, Hassanen, you mentioned with Iraq, like that's it, heads are gonna roll. The assistant coach, the head coach, somebody's gotta go. 
um, it happens in every federation except the Palestinian Federation. And, you know, I think the FA itself, I have to look at them in the mirror and then that's it. Like they got to change. Like Jibril Jou has to leave. Somebody else has to come in. New decisions have to be made. Um, the way they operate cannot remain the same because let me tell you, there will, they will reach a point, a breaking point with the players where they'll just say, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. Because now Palestine is respectable and can go on and we can say Palestine is at the Arab Cup alongside Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and them not be out of place or a joke team. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that this team was ranked 180th. <laughs> and, you know, the kids may not remember, but I remember it, you know, so definitely changes is, is needed. And I hope this is the signal that says, okay, we have to change the way we operate. Any final thoughts on group C for those who missed it? Morocco uh, win the group, 100% record, Jordan finish with six points. Uh, they finish in second place and will play the winner of Group D, which, Hassanin, I think you have some thoughts. Yeah, it's not so much on Group C, but something I picked up on, I don't know if you lot noticed this. When, um, I'm mentioning this because of the whole talk about Palestine, and Mahal, you might want to add to this as well. When Tunis played UAE during the national anthem, the, the Tunisian fans were like completely booing and just being extremely loud during the national anthem. Uh, did you guys see this? What were your thoughts on this, etc.? I, I did not see this. Well, surprise. <laughs> um, anybody else? So let me understand this. So the, the Tunisian fans yeah. booed the Emirati anthem. Yeah, yeah. This is not this is not uncommon in North Africa. Like this is this is we had to have this discussion at the last uh, Algeria played Burkina Faso uh, in November. Now the last match day of, um, of World Cup qualifying in the second round, and the coach basically had to implore like the fans. He passed on a message. He was like, "All right, we want you to be there. We want you to be raucous, intimidating, loud. Yes, like as usual." He's like, "But we can like just stop for like a minute or two minutes before the national anthem, right?" Like. This is not like something that's like specifically against the Emirates or specifically against Burkina Faso. It's just somehow become ingrained in North African football culture that this is a way we can intimidate the opposition. Like when their national anthem is being played, we have to boo it. And it's slowly being phased out because people do see it as disrespectful and, you know, people are complaining rightfully so. But it's not, I wouldn't read too much into it. This is like very, very common in North Africa, when, especially like when, if it's a heated match or something like that, people will boo the national anthem just as a way of like putting pressure on. So, Did this happen for Tunis' other games as well? Because I only noticed it in this match. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really I not sure. I didn't, I didn't I see that. that yeah. Yeah. In any case, uh, there is a certain match I really want to get into. But before we do that, Miron, any final thoughts on Group C? And then I will give you um, the mantle to speak about Lebanon against Sudan. Uh, um, no, nothing. Uh, the result was very surprising. I was watching Palestine versus Jordan, and I thought that it's not a football game. I don't know if it was hockey or something like that, but it wasn't football. Uh, the result doesn't reflect entirely how the game went because, uh, yeah, Palestine created some chances. Uh, as you thought, they were missed by a certain someone who shall not be named. <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's unfair for the five win. And you can see how stressful was the game from the reaction of Adnan Hamad after the third goal. Uh, you can see that it, uh, he was very stressed and, uh, and he went on. And your defending as individuals are, are, are shameful, to, be, to say the least. But you cannot defend like that. I'm sorry, but you cannot defend like that and expect to be a decent national team. Uh, yeah. I'll give the floor to Hassani because I'm going to be real disrespectful, nah, I think. I um, I was just going to say, <laughs> I thought I was going to be the very pessimistic one here today. <laughs> Maron, I love his honesty and it's brutal honesty, I should say. But it's hard to disagree, man. Like, I want to say, oh, no, that's not fair. Or you know, this is, it's not a, a nice way to speak. But, bro, like... Wait until I start about Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I would agree. I think the, the best defenders Palestine have were their fullbacks who weren't there. And, yeah, the, Palestine has a lot of good attacking talent, both that they produce at home. I think Tamar Siam, uh, he, he probably won't get credit for it. But if you're going to make an underrated 11 in this tournament... I think Tamar Siam deserves a ton, a ton of credit for what he did, uh, an assist and a goal in the tournament. And I think he should have added three or four assists if a certain someone could finish. So it's not that Palestine can't produce talent. It's just that the talent they produce are almost always attackers. And there's a reason why there's a 37, soon to be 38-year-old captain in Palestine. And yeah, he can be exposed at times because he's not as quick as he once was. The, the man next to him, who I think is a good player, a decent player, Yes, Hamid is without a club, and that comes down to it, right? And we're talking, all we've spoken about in this episode is fine margins, fine margins, fine margins. These are part of the fine margins that, oh, well, name me some decent center backs, and they can you can only count them on one hand, and then afterwards you're really sweating bullets because it's some guy who's never played before that smokes maybe a shisha every day, you know, like loves to, you know, food with semne, with uh, just purified or clarified butter. Um, so, yeah, it's not, it's not good. I would agree. I mean, it's a brutal assessment. <laughs> Thanks to that, Maron. But like, I would agree that as, um, as individuals, the defending in some, in very key circumstances needed to be better. And that could have changed the result of the game. I think the, the main thing of the Arab Cup was to bring us together, but the disappointment is that it's brought us together and how rubbish all our countries are. <laughs> it's, it's unified us in all the wrong ways possible. <laughs> uh, well, Algeria is still alive and we will go to Group D. Uh, but first, before we get to the Algeria-Egypt match where we almost had a drying of the lots, uh, we have to give Maron the opportunity to speak about Lebanon. Um, what happened in Lebanon against Sudan? And how is it that when a goalkeeper punches a ball, it can fly backwards? Uh, so please, Maron, tell us what happened in this Lebanon-Sudan game. Just one note about the previous group. What I said about Palestine can be 100% adopted for Jordan. Uh, I'm not saying that Jordan played well. They were shit also. But yeah. Coming back to Lebanon, uh, very frustrated. It wasn't football what I watched, really. Uh, I mean, we couldn't make one decent attack. Uh, we couldn't come forward. The game, the ball was loose in the middle, always. I don't know why. Uh, 
neither side wanted to play, I think. Neither side are ready to play. I mean, as Lebanon, we defend very well. We know how to defend. But we do that versus greater teams. It means like when we play versus South Korea, versus Iran, versus uh, Egypt, versus Algeria, we, we play very well because we know how to defend. Also, when we play that, we do counterattacks and we don't cross the halfway line. Now, when we, we are not pressed by, uh, by a team like we played versus Sudan, we couldn't make a decent attack. Our own, we, we've had some chances. It was, in my opinion, individual brilliances, like the one when Mehdi Zain crossed, it, crossed, the, crossed the goal and Hilal Hilary just needed to put his knee into it and it would be a goal, but he didn't. Another one, I think that it came from a corner. So, and it didn't came from a corner for the right way. Even in set pieces, the, the countries, the national teams of this region, the West Asia, are not organized in set pieces. We don't have a shape even in either it's free kick, corner. I don't know. It's It sucks. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched the game. I've missed the first half of I'm I I'm a AC Milan fan. We had Liverpool, Milan versus Liverpool. I missed the first half to watch the national team. When it ended, I flipped back to the to the Liverpool uh, Milan game. I couldn't watch it. I, it was a different sport. I wasn't in the mood for it. I I I wanted some uh, shit housery to come on. I couldn't watch it. Really, I couldn't watch. I made an effort to keep watching until the end. So. It's it. I know it's it, what I'm asking for is is a lot because the players here in the season are not well developed as youngsters. We don't have decent academies. We don't have decent coaches. We don't have decent decent FAs. We the, the only strategy that any FA has made that in the West Asia in the WAF except that couple of golf uh, FAs is how to live day by day. We will see what happens in the summer. It, it showed in the third qualifiers before the shoot when Iraq appointed Dick Advocate, when Lebanon appointed Ivan Hasek, when did Syria appoint, uh, I forgot the name, uh, Syria oh. Nizar Mahrouz. It, it was late in, in August. Uh, uh, late, uh, Ivan came, I think, in the first week of August. How can you? You can't plan that. We knew that we were in the third group in June, uh, just for references. So, yeah, it's it's anything. It's I know the players put their heart into this game. I know some of them are decent enough to sleep on schedule, to not drink, to uh, not party. Uh, even though there are other players that are not as uh, committed as those players. I really want the national team to do well just for those players. Like, I know Mustafa Matar in person. I know what he had to go through since the start of his career, What in what environment he is going up and what he achieved. And he deserves every ounce of respect he got in those games. He was voted twice as, as the player of the week or the player of the match day in in this tournament, in the post-match days that he played in. But yeah, I, I, something that gotta give, something that gotta help those players to go, to make that break that 
Maher said, we had two players in Lebanon in the early 2000s that went on to play in the Bundesliga in Germany. One of them became the captain of Colm, Yusuf Hamadodo. He's now in the national team. But we couldn't build on that. We couldn't do anything. And it's always sad. That's, it's always like that in Lebanon. It's, it's a situation. It's, uh, it's, uh, and it sucks. Uh, I mean, it was our first ever win versus Sudan. So as a, as a historian of the national team, I'm very proud. And uh, I like that we finally beat Sudan. Another one to add to the box. But yeah, I'm very frustrated from what I've watched late, uh uh, last night, and I would keep, I would stay frustrated until the night of the upcoming game against South Korea, when I will be right head, I will be hyped back into the national team, and yeah, we're gonna win. We can win. It's inside of the game, we can win, and then we're gonna lose to one zero or two zero in a close game. Then I'm gonna be disappointed. Then until the next game, and yeah, it's a little story of how life of uh, fan of. Uh, West Asian national team is. Yeah. Oh, I feel you. Sorry that. about the long run. I feel you. That. You speak for all of us who we definitely get hyped up when we see that our national team is scheduled to play. And then, you know, you sort of just get this huge serotonin crash and it's not, it's not a good feeling. Um, Hassanan, I see you have your hand up. Final thoughts, I think, on uh, this game. And then we will get Maher's thoughts on. Uh, yeah. I think it was nah. the match of the day. Um, I, I'm just here to give Maron some, some advice on life. See, the thing here that you want to do is not support a good team like AC Milan. See, I'm a Man United fan. So as bad as Iraq are, whenever I watch United, that's a step down. <laughs> so watching Iraq is actually like an improvement used to this nonsense that I see every single week. So pick a worse team, bro. AC Milan are too good for you. In my defense, when I... when when I start to like really chill Milan and watch every game, it was like 2011 or something like that. I'm, I am fan since 2007. But since then, the team was very kind to me and it dropped a lot. Like we had season when we finished 10th in the, in the league, uh, in Serie A. So yeah, now they're getting back good and they make my life difficult. So I need to talk to Paolo Maldini, then please don't make any more transfers. Sell players, don't buy. <laughs> I need to learn, man. Well, you can always cheer for Monza, Silvio Berlusconi's new uh, new team, who are competing to be in Serie A next year. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Maher, tell us about this Egypt-Algeria game, which, by the way, we said we wanted more fans in the stands. Yeah. The Egyptian fans, the Algerian fans, they heard us. And this was a fantastic atmosphere. It was completely the opposite of what we thought it would be, or be like a stodgy like game with neither team going for it. They were going for it. And towards the end of the game, they were, uh, I think, more concerned with yellow cards, but then there were a bunch of yellow cards handed out in the last half an hour. Incredible match. Give us your thoughts. Just a quick one final note on Lebanon against Sudan. Uh... I think Sudanese goalkeeper Abu Ashirin, that was probably the worst goalkeeping performance, not just against Lebanon, but I mean like taking the tournament overall, I've probably ever seen in my life. Like that was, he was at fault for I think three of the four goals against Algeria. Like you said, he tried to punch the ball out and it went, yeah, it was, I don't know how Abu Ashirin can, can remain the goalkeeper of Sudan. But anyways, yeah, uh, yes, that's the first thing I have in my notes. 
best atmosphere, I think, at this tournament. I don't think I'm, I'm wrong in saying that, even though I know Qatar have had some fans, but that this was like really, really big up, especially to the Egyptian fans. I think they outnumbered the Algerians probably three to one, maybe four to one. They were everywhere and they were making noise. They, you know, had they built up like, you know, like behind the goal, like uh, remind me of the old Al-Ahli matches before the before the revolution, you know, where they had like a, a cop behind the goals and the drummer and the capo and everything. So it was, it was really cool to see that. Um, so, yeah, the atmosphere was great. Um, but I think overall, I'm going to start like with an overall assessment of this match. I think the difference in coaching between Carlos Kieros and Majid Bouguera was the main difference in this game. I think... Egypt were much, much better tactically. They were more structured. They uh, were more organized in terms of pressing. Uh, their pass, the, the way they constructed, uh, you know, attacking sequences of play was really good. I think Algeria had the more talented players. Yassine Brahimi was uh, voted man of the match. I thought he had a fantastic game. Um, Yusuf Belayli also was a menace. Uh, Baghdad Bounijah was okay for the first half until he went out with a concussion. But we could see as soon as, for example, Baghdad Bounijah, he went out with his concussion. Uh, we could see that Algeria didn't really have somebody to, they could replace him with. It. We really felt that. Um, so Algeria were more relying on individuals. Egypt, I think, were the better team. And I think that, that that showed, and I think that's probably why they deserved to go through top of the group in Algeria as runners-up. Um, yeah, so I think the, I, I thought it was a good game, too. Um, it was funny because I think up until like the last 10 minutes, everything was, was square. I think each side had two yellow cards, two yellow cards. I saw Akram Tofiq spoke after the uh, the match, and he said that they were briefed at halftime that uh, you shouldn't get any more yellow cards, you shouldn't get any more bookings. Um, I don't think Algeria were, because some of the yellow cards, like Zakaria Drawi came in, like sliding, took a player out from 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 behind. It was a clear yellow card. And I'm, it's like the 82nd minute. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know? And then luckily enough, Amr Suleya comes in with a high kick. Okay. It's three, three on the yellow cards. And I'm like, okay, if you're the coach, I'm yelling at everybody. Do not get booked. Do not get booked, you know, play it safe. Do not get booked. And you have Al-Arbi Hilal Sudani who had probably his worst match ever on with an Algeria shirt. I think um, he's somebody that I think he's could be maybe top five in goal scoring in Algeria national team history. He's a decent player. But this match was, I think, his worst of all. He didn't do anything well. He replaced Baghdad Bounijah at halftime. He wasn't even being dispossessed. He was giving the ball away. And he just capped off that, that horrific performance with another yellow card. And then by then, the match was pretty much over. And we had a, a youngster who is actually going to be, I think, playing in Europe in one or two years. Yassin Titarawi. He was sent off with a red card. And by then, it was done and dusted. But he's somebody definitely to look, at, look out for. They call him the Algerian Barati. He's very, very, very good. Uh, 18 years old um again you'll be seeing him i think i'm gonna make a bold prediction you'll be seeing him probably playing champions league football in europe um in the next five years probably so uh let's say six years <laughs> so yeah overall i think it was a good game um i think egypt were the winners of the group algeria just slightly behind i think that's reflected in the standings and now everything lines up we talked about the algeria egypt rivalry and this was a good sporting rivalry no no hate nothing this one against Morocco is going to be <laughs> is going to be intense. Okay. Uh, the political situation between the two between the two countries right now is not good, with, mostly because of the Western Sahara issue. But not only that, um, and there's already like politically, there's already you know like jibes going back and forth uh, for the last year or so. And now with this match also being uh, coming up, it's going to be it's going to be very fractious. So that's going to be, I think, a very very intense match. 
And one final note, um, I, I'm not in Algeria right now, obviously, I wish I was, but um, I saw like a few videos and a few photos from back home. It was just good to see big screen set up, you know, around Algiers, uh, everybody going through my Instagram stories and everybody watching the game. I thought like maybe, well, it's not exactly a dead rubber because they, they, were, they were fighting for rankings, but I thought like, you know, maybe an Arab Cup match on a Champions League night. Not really sure that people are going to be tuning in like to that extent. And they really were like, this was a match that was followed by almost everybody in Algeria. So I thought that was good to see. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be exciting in the knockout stages. It's going to be a really good derby. Yeah. And speaking of the knockout stages, we now know the other side of the bracket. So we spoke about the first two quarterfinal matches. Let's speak a little bit about these other two uh, quarterfinal matches. You've teased it a little bit. Morocco against Algeria. Can Algeria, does anyone here think Algeria can stop this Moroccan buzzsaw? Uh, I mean, let's, let's also be fair to Algeria. I think they are on a completely different level than Jordan and Palestine and the team Saudi Arabia bought to this tournament. But is this potentially uh, going to be a banana skin for, for Morocco? Hassan, go ahead. I mean, obviously, my is the expert here, but just my humble opinion on it is when it comes to games like this, where there's so much at stake, so much uh, intensity in rivalry games, where the fans are completely buzzing and they're behind the team, I think sometimes quality can be replaced by desire, commitment, hunger, and um, just the, the fans being behind the team, you know? Sometimes even if you're not the better team technically, tactically, if, if you want it more, anything can happen in these games. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out Algeria completely just because uh, Morocco are a very good team. Truth is, in these, these matches, you never really know. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out Algeria at all. I think I think Morocco are favorites, slight favorites, as they should be, because they've been the best side of this tournament. Again, I think individually, Algeria have better players. I don't think there's a player that's as good as Yusuf Leili on the Moroccan side, or Baghdad Bounajah, or even Yassine Brahimi, maybe, yeah. So I think individually, Algeria have better individuals. Morocco will be the better coach side. They've been playing much longer together. This Algerian side was sort of cobbled together for the FIFA Arab Cup keeping in mind the Africa Cup of Nations coming up. So they wanted to bring in some senior players just to keep up their fitness. And then also keeping in mind, like, basically a lot of youngsters that they think, okay, these guys could be part of the national team in the future, so let's give them uh, some playing time. Whereas Morocco, this is like a well-oiled machine that won, again, two African Nations Championship and is trying probably to three-peat in 2023. So... Um, Morocco are the better collective. They'll be the better side, I think, because they're better coached and they have more chemistry. But Algeria are absolutely capable of pulling off this upset. So I think it's like a 60-40 split. And uh, yeah, just one final, final thing about Algeria. There are rumors that the coach Majid Bouguera didn't really, he wasn't really the one pulling the trigger, making decisions on selecting players, that this was more the senior national team, Jamal Belmadi saying, hey, we need to prepare the Africa Cup of Nations. So, you know, take these players with you. Uh, I have my eye on this guy in the future, so take him. And they're just sort of using the Arab Cup as a sort of, just to, to keep players, you know, like keep the blood flowing a little bit uh, for fitness reasons, not necessarily to win it. 
And if that's the case, it, it kind of skews your assessment of the coach. Because I'm trying to see, can Majid Bouguera become the Algerian national team coach in the future? Because I know Jamal Belmadi is probably not going to be here after the World Cup. So uh, it, it's unfair to him, in a sense. But overall, I haven't been too impressed with him. So he has a chance to, to clear all of that and to, to, uh, to do well with a win against Morocco. But like I said, I do anticipate Morocco being the slight favorites. But as Hassanin said, in a derby like this, a North African derby, anything can happen. Yeah, most definitely. Maron, uh, let's hear from you. Egypt, uh, Egypt, uh, sorry, uh, Algeria against Morocco. Uh, who would you back to make to the semifinal of the two? Actually, the only game that I do not have a, a clear view of who's going to advance, it's Basically, of the four uh, quarterfinals, it's the game that I'm waiting to watch the most. Uh, I think Morocco are, have a side advantage, but I agree with Hassani with what he said, that what is at stake with the whole political uh, uh, shenanigans that are happening there, as Meher said, it can overcompensate or some lack of qualities. But... I don't know, just uh, going with my gut, I think Morocco will advance. And do we really need to talk about Egypt and Jordan? Is there really anything to talk about? Well, here's what I will say for Egypt and Jordan. There's been kind of a, a weird connection between the two countries because Jordan really wasn't much of a football country for most of its history. And then they uh, took the decision to hire uh, Gohari. And so when Gohari came, this really changed Jordanian football. They got to their first Asian Cup in 2004. They got out of the groups uh, there. And then I think he, after that tournament, he stayed on as an advisor. Uh, they did bring Hassan Hassan, uh, I think based on his, on Gohari's recommendation. Uh, and I think actually the Jordanian national team probably played its best football under Hassan Hassan when Adnan Hamad had sort of gotten them to uh, the playoff and then he took over for the playoff and um, the intercontinental playoff against Uruguay. And I thought in those two games, when Jordan beat Uzbekistan, and um, even though they, they lost against Uruguay, I thought they played their best football there. So there's that weird connection. Uh, look, I, if you're gonna say, is there a point to talk about it? I think we have to talk about it because it is one of the quarterfinals. Um, so yeah, let's, let's see how Hassanin has to say about that. It's not so much about that. I'm just looking at the uh, the teams that qualified and comparing it to our predictions at the start. And I think, yeah, we, we made some predictions. I wouldn't say they were bold by any means, but I think for the overwhelming predictions that we made, they were spot on. So all of us predicted Tunis to go through. I think it was you, Basil, that said, or was it Maron that said Oman will go through rather than Iraq? Uh, but to be fair, even I said that could be hit and miss depending on the squad that comes out. Um, and if I knew this squad was going to be there, I would have bet on Oman going through. Uh, Egypt, we all predicted that. Jordan was the one that really stood out in terms of the, the country that nobody thought would go through. That, and that's because we've been shocked at how poor the, the young Saudi uh, team has been. Yeah. But Qatar, Emirat, Morocco, Algeria, these are all predictions we made. And I think it says more about the kind of the distinction and quality amongst some of the teams at the Arab Cup rather than anything else. Yeah, Mahir is just reminding us that I, I did pick Jordan to, to go through. Um, yeah, and I have to put my hand up, though. I did pick Syria to finish second in that group. That was the one dissenting voice 
in that circumstance. And then I think Baron was the one dissenting voice in group A picking Alman to go through. I mean, you know, I think a lot of Jordanians are going to think that this is the Jordan of old. And in a lot of ways they are the Jordan of old because it's their old coach. And what they're doing is they're really just pulling on the strings, the last dying embers of the uh, 1987 generation, the generation that played in the under 20 uh, World Cup in Canada back in 2007. And I think, you know, Jordanians will probably be, I know they're super high on this win right now. They're just going crazy. Oh, we beat the 5-1, we're back, baby. But before this, when they had lost to Morocco 4-0, it was all doom and gloom. And even before the tournament, people were saying, Adnan Hamid is not the right choice. Why is he calling up these players? Why are we playing this way? The conversation we had during this episode saying, well, when are we going to you know, advance and catch up with the rest of the world and, and try and play a more proactive style? Those were all the feelings that Jordanians were having. And I think now probably them and the players are in the state that, oh yeah, we could do this. We put five goals past Palestine. Uh, I, I don't see it happening. Personally, I don't see it happening. Um, Adnan Hamad, as much as I respect him for what he did as a coach, I thought him even coming back was a bit of a retread of like Jordan trying to live good times again. And I, I really feel like if Adnan Hamad was... Uh, I wouldn't say a good coach, but a coach that could have success in multiple places, uh, regardless of maybe the talent afforded to him, then he would have had a longer stint with Bahrain because he was there for like two seconds. He had some other uh, stints here and there where he didn't last very long. Iraq would have considered them for his for, for the top job as well, and that never happened. So I just think that it's the end of the road for Jordan. Respect for getting out of the group when nobody gave them a chance. But that was a big assist from Saudi Arabia bringing their under-23 team. And for, for Palestine, you know, being dysfunctional as they are and also being with a lot of their, out, without a lot of their key players. So, yeah, I, I think um, – I, I, I don't see Jordan playing off an upset. Maher, I, Just one know. quick final note. Egypt didn't need a penalty to beat Lebanon and a penalty to, to draw with Algeria. Um, Max 5 past Sudan, but Sudan, we know, had horrific goalkeeping. Um, and even in the Algeria match, they never really threatened too much, despite the fact that they were playing better and they were dominating possession, not really dominating, but they had the better lion's share of possession. I, did, I felt like, who's the striker? Who's going to score a goal for Egypt? Um, Amr Saleh had a few like long distance shots that I thought were decent, but I, I think that could be something to keep an eye on because in the knockout stages, you just have to last 120 minutes and then run to penalties. So Egypt... If somehow they are to be eliminated, it's good because it's going to be because they're not able to score a goal and Jordan somehow hangs on. But uh, do we have that much faith in Jordan's defending? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, also, their defenders are old. And at the end of the day, okay, Khalid Salim didn't score against you, but you did make Khalid Salim look like a goal scoring threat, which is um, not good. Uh, Hassanen, I think you uh, wanted to chime in here. Yeah, I was just going to add that um, sometimes even if you can't really score goals, if you could defend well and you could play on the counter-attack or you get uh, a few chances from set pieces, it might be enough to win a tournament, you know. Um, so you, you can play defensively. There are a lot of teams like Greece, for example, that have gone through and, and won the big tournaments just by playing defensive football. So I wouldn't say that's the, uh, the be-all and end-all of, uh, of Egypt. Yeah, look, I think I've seen a lot of Carlos Queiroz's teams. I saw a lot of Iran at the last um, last Asian Cup. 
um, you know, as even if let's say Jordan gets a fluke goal, they're not the type of team that's going to have the, the firepower to then um, threaten you to add to that lead. If they did, then they would have been able to just destroy Palestine on the counter earlier on in the game. And that didn't happen. So I think, you know, this is just a Kirosh team. They're just going to suck the life out of you by controlling the proceedings of the game. And they will create enough chances to, to win. And I just don't think that, um, I, I, I think Lebanon is actually a more defensively disciplined team than, than Jordan is. Um, Jordan has, I think, more attacking talent, more solutions to, to create dangerous opportunities. But if we're talking about a team that can defend, I, I just, that's all Lebanon does for me. Um, all I see when Lebanon plays is uh, a group of 10 men who run like crazy and defend. It's their game. And that is not uh, Jordan's game per, per se, right? Like, I don't think the Jordanian players have any interest in doing that. So, look, I think we've got consensus here. I think we're all going to pick Tunisia to beat Oman. We're all going to pick Egypt to beat Jordan. Uh, Qatar to beat the UAE. I don't see any faces here saying no about that. So, really, we've got a final in the quarterfinal, and it comes down to Morocco, Algeria. And, you know, I would say the team that, that wins that one will be well poised. They'll meet Qatar in the semifinal. But that is definitely the game I'm looking forward to. To wrap up uh, our episode today, what I want to do is I want to go around and um, give me the moment and player of, uh, not really necessarily player of the tournament, but player you most enjoyed watching uh, in this uh, group stage of the FIFA Arab Cup. Hassan, go ahead. Before I answer this, I just want to throw one question at Maher because he's a bit of an outsider and he's, he's the only one from uh, a North African background. Mahar, you've watched these games now and you've seen the likes of Iraq, Palestine, Lubnan. What's been your honest assessment in terms of the quality of the Gulf teams and the, the West Asian football team? Be gentle. <laughs> why, why are you putting no, no, but honestly, I think it's a similar assessment to what Manon was saying earlier, that there is a, it's a step under, in my, in my honest opinion. And I, I think that's not like too much of a surprise. It's kind of what we expected going in. And again, not all West Asian nations are the same. Um, I think Qatar and Saudi senior team, you know, will, will be a little bit higher than, uh, than you know, uh, uh, Palestine. Sorry, Bessel. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think they, they are a step ahead. Um, I would have liked to see Saudi senior team here. Uh, but it's not, it's not really a big surprise for me. Yeah, so... The main difference, I think, it's not just, we still spoke a lot about physical capacity, but there is, I think, also technical, uh, a technical difference as well. What is, that, like, how does that difference come up? That's, I think, something that you guys will have to investigate. But, uh, yeah, I think there's, a, I don't know how much money you guys pump, pump into football. I don't know, like, the infrastructure. You guys said there was no academies earlier, so you don't have an academy. Yeah, so that's probably, that's probably well, your that's answer. Right there. But, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna need academies, you need stadiums, you need all that stuff. The more the more money you put into football, the the better football you're gonna produce. As Qatar probably displayed over the last uh, ten years or twelve years. Okay, Hassanen, moment moment of the tournament and player you most enjoyed watching. I mean, uh, I don't have much to choose from. <laughs> if I was going to say anything, uh, it was probably that last-minute shambles where Petrovic runs onto the pitch and fights with our striker, telling him to put the ball down and let one of the, uh, the Olympic team players 
um, take the penalty. So that's my favorite moment in terms of um, plays that I've enjoyed watching. <sighs> Again, not really spoiled for choice here. Um, I'm probably going to go for um, maybe Munaf Yunus, the new centre-back we've uh, brought in to replace Ahmed Ibrahim. He's looked good. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on him and I've enjoyed watching him play. Araf playing in a 4-4-2. Looks fairly good defensively, to be fair, until the, those last 10 minutes against Qatar. And I feel like it's, he's, a, he's a decent player to have in the team and I'm, I'm happy to have him there. Moron, what about you? Uh, moments of the tournament and player you most enjoyed watching. Doesn't necessarily need to be Lebanese, uh, by the way. Yeah, but he would be Lebanese. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Mustafa Motar deserves uh, like a nod for what he did. Uh, the youngsters that debuted, we had, I think, four debuts. Uh, three of them played more than two minutes, so uh, Medizan was good uh, yesterday with Sudan. Uh, I like them. You have uh, Muhammad Ali Dhaini, he, he, he's like the type of the number six players that you do not notice that he is playing unless he makes a mistake. So, most of the games he played, he goes unnoticed. Because he delivers the right pass, uh, he 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 just you know like he's that link between defense and midfielder, and the midfield, but he does he really do, does a mistake, so he really doesn't stand out. But he's a phenomenal as a number six, so I I think that soon he will go to a top club in uh, in Sweden. Although he's a little bit old, he's like twenty seven. He plays in the second division. Yeah, but uh, I like him very much. So basically, you can say it's either between Mustafa or Muhammad. Uh, my favorite moment, I don't really have a favorite moment, to be honest. From the, I, I like Qatar, how they played uh, a little bit in the first half, mostly, and I think the second game. I've I like Morocco a lot. I've enjoyed watching their games. Uh, yeah, that's all about it. I did not enjoy any anything concerning Lebanon except the performance of Hamad and Mustafa. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I guess I will go uh, first, and I will leave it to Matt to round things up. Uh, moment of the tournament for me. And where like my optimism sprung and I thought, okay, we're, we're back on track. Um, Mohamed Rashid's goal. Oh my God. That was what a goal. And the celebration afterwards where he ran into the stands to um, celebrate with the injured Rami Hamadi and the crowd was going wild. Uh, it was just a nice moment. A nice moment that I think uh, myself and other Palestine fans will, will look back on fondly. It's probably the nicest goal I've seen scored um, by the Palestinian national team in the 23 years I've been watching them. Um, player I've enjoyed most, well, since nobody uh, else decided to be um, unbiased, I will also uh, uh, take a biased approach. And I will say Tamar Sliam, I know I mentioned him earlier in this episode, uh, look, the guy played in, in Morocco. It is a shame that he is now back playing in Palestine. This is a guy who deserves and can easily play in any of these leagues in the Gulf. Easily, easily. And, he, and he, showed, he showed that in the last two games of the tournament. I mean, the first game was, I think, a scratch for everyone on, on the Palestine side. 
and Morocco is a great team. They'll do that to you. But he was fantastic against Saudi Arabia. He was fantastic against Jordan. He got a goal and assist. And like I said, if we had a half-decent striker and not Khalid Salem, who um, I would equate to a baby giraffe on skates, um, then I think it would have been a different tournament for him and for, for all of Palestine. But neither here nor there. I'm over it now. So Maher, take us away. Uh, player you've enjoyed watching the most and your moment of the tournament. Mm, so the players that I haven't enjoyed watching, Khalid Salam, Ismail Matar is 38 years old and he's still playing. Hilal Sudani, 34 years old, garbage. Farouk bin Mustafa and Abu Ashrin from Sudan, these guys, all of them. I never want to see them again. Yes. Not playing yes. for their nations. So. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Get rid of them. I don't want to see this anymore. And there's too many 35, 36, 37 year olds playing in this tournament, in my opinion. Um, so the players that I've enjoyed watching, Algeria, Belali, and Brahimi, uh, should be for Morocco, the right back. I think he had a nice goal, beautiful assist against Palestine as well. And Yahya Jabran has been a very good metronome sort of midfield player as well. Um, so those two from those four from Morocco and Algeria, Belali, Brahimi, should be in Jabran. And me and Bess's prediction for top scorer, Saif Din Jaziri, is at three goals. He's leading goal scorer so far. Uh, he missed a few chances in this last match against the UAE. He could have had four or five goals, but uh, we look good on that prediction, Bess. So I think his movement has been pretty good. I just want to see him be a little sharper, and that'll be, that'll be good. Yeah, 100%. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for putting all the work, uh, getting through this group stage. I mean, I don't know how the players did it. I am exhausted. Um, they packed in a lot of football. Listen, you need that extra rest day during the group stage. You cannot do this game every three days. Game every four days, maybe. Game every three days, not so much. And then when you have to get on with all the different time zones and speak about it, it makes it even more difficult. So thank you for your time. Uh, everyone who's been listening, uh, listen, give us a like, subscribe. It's on Spotify. It's on YouTube if you want to see our beautiful faces as well. We have two more episodes, so obviously we will be back uh, after the quarterfinals are done, and then after that we will be back after the semifinals are done to recap and then preview the stage ahead. Thank you, everyone, and in the meantime, enjoy the football.